in our day and age, people find it very difficult to believe in the invisible. Um, I find this to be aptly summarized in the comments of uh, Scott Eichen. Scott Eichen is a philosopher of religion. He's an atheist, but he's a philosopher of religion at Vanderbilt University. And he put it this way, quote, the evidence points to the fact that God doesn't exist. The absence of evidence is evidence of his absence. A rather pithy way of putting it. What he's saying is, you know, you can't see him. I don't see the evidence for him there before he doesn't exist. And so you might think this is a kind of modern problem. You might hear a lot of that today. But you go back and you find, as far as you want to go back, the same sentiment is there among some people. Um, I have a book on my shelf uh, in, in, uh, at home, and the, the title of the book is from the early 20th century, and the title of the book is The Seeming Unreality of the Spiritual Life. And it's uh, written by an academic who is struggling with this question and this difficulty that, you know, you can't see God, it's invisible, doesn't exist. Does he exist? He's struggling with that question. Or even going back to, you know, the meditation in your bulletin that we have from George MacDonald this morning, that's the 19th century. But you can go back and back and find that, you know, all the time there are people who have trouble believing and knowing this God. If you're, and if it's, you're feeling like he's just invisible, have trouble knowing him or believe in believing in him, you're going to have trouble with the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is declared to us to be invisible right up front, rather definitely. Colossians chapter 1 speaks of the invisible God. Or 1 Timothy 1, to have Paul saying and praying to the, the, the great king, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Or 1 Timothy 6, praises the one who cannot be seen, who dwells in unapproachable light, who, quote, no one has ever seen or can see. So no way about, no two ways about it. He's, he's unapproachable. You can't see him. And so as we are seeing, some people reject God's existence because of that, because you can't put him between your teeth. But the scriptures tell us that there is yet some ways in which we can know God, even though we cannot see him. Right? You open up the Bible and you read it, and you say, oh, there are indications that he is there. Actually, Romans 1 says, says it just that way. It says, the invisibles of God, that's what it says literally, Romans 1, the invisibles of God are clearly seen in the things that are made, in the things of creation. So you can perceive God somehow in these things that are made. And that's why in the scriptures, there are hundreds, hundreds of analogies of God from the things that are made. God is the rock. God is the vine. God is the shepherd. God is the potter. God is the husband. God is the father. And a couple times, God is the mother. 
hundreds of different ways of looking at God, saying that all of them, though, are all, because there are so many, are saying to us, not one of them is absolute. And Moses, who we're going to be reading about this morning, somehow was able to handle this mystery because Hebrews 11 talks about Moses and describes him as the one who endured as seeing him who is invisible. So there are ways that somehow we can connect with God. There are also these uh, things that we call theophanies where God bends matter and, and light so that he can use that to represent himself to us at times. And usually those are the times where we end up with scripture, when there is a theophany in the world, either you know, before it or during it or after it, and people are recording this, um, that becomes scripture for us. But still, even with all of these different ways, you can't see him can't see God himself. And that is why the Israelites got this second commandment. You know, we, we've been walking with the Israelites, right, on their journey out of Egypt. And we walk with them as they went all of the way through the crossing. On the other side of the crossing, they had many adventures. Um, and what fascinates me about that time period is the relationship between God and Moses during that time, we're going to be looking at that today. Well, one of their adventures is that they go to this mountain and God gives them the Ten Commandments. And the second commandment is where God tells them, <laughs> don't even try. Right? The second commandment where God tells them not to make an image, what he's saying to them is, you know, you're going to want to worship me and you're going to want to kind of represent me so that you can, you can connect with me. And he says, don't even try. Because if you try, if you try to represent me, you will fall short and you'll end up sinning. And that is why, um, you know, the Israelites, when they were doing well, (laughs) they did not try to represent him. Instead, they used abstract art. Now, let me just ask you something. Those, you know, when you go into a museum, you know, there's always some part of the museum where you, you see all these nice pictures and these sculptures, and then you come to the some part, and it's abstract art, right? And it's not anything like, what is it, right? I, let me just ask how many of you, I'll ask how many of you like that part of the museum, or maybe whole museums dedicated to that, and how many don't like that? Well, let me ask first, how many of you like that? You like abstract art? You say, okay, all right. I'm, I'm determining who you are, okay. <laughs> how many of you don't like it? How many of you walk into and say, oh, what on earth? Like, I don't get it, it's gobbledygook, right? Okay, I'm probably in that second camp, you know. But for those of us who have trouble with abstract art, those of us who are, you know, struggle with that, you should realize it, it started a long time ago with the Israelites. And the reason that we have abstract art and the reason Israelites had it is because you cannot represent God. You can't see him. He's the invisible. And so God was telling them, don't even try. And so instead, they had abstract art. So Solomon, before his temple, he had these two enormous pillars, these two huge pillars. I think they were made out of bronze, but they were just so massive. And you walk by them, and it's like they're not representing anything except you felt God was immovable. As you were going into his temple, you felt like, oh my gosh, God is, he's vast, he's enormous. Like these pillars, he's just immovable. 
or if, or if you get inside in the temple or in the tabernacle, you know, the Israelites were going out now to build their tabernacle in the wilderness and they had all sorts of kind of symbolism. They had all these curtains that was like, you can't see, you can't see, you can't see. And even if you got in to the inner part, the Holy of Holies, what did you see? Well, essentially nothing. <laughs> there was this box, you know, and it was a beautiful box, but it was just on top of this box, there was this seat. They called it the mercy seat. And they called it the seat because the box wasn't the thing. It was, on, it was what was on top of the box. The box was God's footstool or his throne in some way. And so you follow, the, the, your eyes go up to look at what's above the box, and what do you see? Nothing. And you had these two cherubim, cherubim on either side looking down through the, the invisible upon the mercy seat. And right there where you, where you would expect to see something, where every other religion would put something, would put an image like a bull, you know, or a fish or something. There's nothing. It's invisible, the invisible God. It's why, you know, when we were uh, in uh, our apartment, while our kids were growing up, on the wall there was a piece of art made by my wife. My wife is an artist. And she made this beautiful shield, constructed the shield, and, and she had these sculpted logs that were attached to the shield. But there was this space, and, you, and there was nothing there in between, like a little bit off-center. There was this strip. It was just nothing there. It was like, well, you talk to her about what's there, and, and she says, I see invisible. That's somehow God's place. She was going for the same thing the Israelites were going for. So there's the, there are these ways of, of trying to represent God, even though he's not there, trying to connect with him. And yet, friends, it's not enough. God has given us ways to know him, and yet we still have this. I would say it's kind of a primordial urge. It's this basic desire to see him. Because we need to see him. When things are not well and, 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 you know, we especially have problems in our lives, we need to see him and connect with him. We need to understand him, to understand ourselves. We need to see. We need some kind of connection to make the sorrow go away, to make it all right, to somehow address our problems. So there's this cry of our heart. You know, when, when my uh, son was very little, my son Thaddeus, uh, we lived in, in uh, Brooklyn in this, what, what, what's called a railroad apartment, a railroad car apartment, where you just have rooms that go back one after the other in a line. And uh, we had this apartment back there, and uh, it was kind of dark in the back of the apartment, but there was this one window. And Thaddeus was just learning to, to talk in complete sentences. I think he was a, maybe about two or something. And uh, he, he was just able to toddle over to this window, and the window was open, uh, this back window. And he was just, just large enough, you know, toddling to, to stick his head out the window. And there was this little piece of sky that you could see um, from that window, just a little piece of the sky. And that was, you know, his world. He saw the sky. So he went to this window. He leaned out, and he, he yelled out, God, come down here, God. I want 
to see you. Now, I don't know what the rest of Brooklyn was thinking about this, uh, this little voice coming out of his window, but I, I looked at that and I said, there it is. There is this, this urge, and there's, it's not wrong, this desire to see him, this feeling like a need to see him. And so we have these cries in Scripture that are just like Thaddeus's cry out the back window. And you can see it with Al. I could go th- we don't have time to go through them, but I can go, you know, we can just mention a couple. Job, for example, there's a particular time when Job really, he had these problems going on. He really needed God. And what does he say? You see this cry, this, this basic cry come out of him, Job 23. He says, Job says, I move forward and you're not there. I go backward and I cannot perceive you. He says, I go to the right. I can't observe you. I don't observe you. I go to the left. I cannot see you. Or even in the New Testament, you take the apostle Philip. Philip was someone who walked with Jesus for years, had a relationship with Jesus. And yet, he comes to the Last Supper. The Last Supper is the climax of the relationship between Jesus and his apostles. And there at the Last Supper, you have Philip saying to Jesus, 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 he says, he says, just show us the Father. This is John 14. He says, just show us the Father. It'll be enough. These are not unhealthy questions, unhealthy cries. I find it still today. I have conversations with my daughter about why can't we just see him? Well, that was where Moses was. And what we're about to read is this passage from Exodus chapter 33, where Moses, you know, he really had it in with God. Moses was really close. He had a relationship. I don't know if anybody ever had a relationship like Moses had with God. He was the friend of God. And what I want you to notice as we we read this passage is what's going on at the beginning is how close Moses is with God. And yet, later in the chapter, we find he still has the same cry. Ah, We can't see him. Why? Let's read. Please stand if you're able to read. I'll read, and if you could follow along with Exodus chapter 33. And I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 11 and then 18 through 23. And this is the NIV version. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And Moses went into the tent. As he did, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. 
Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then in verse 18, then Moses said, Show me now your glory. And the Lord said, I will. Cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And I'll stop there. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So the, we get the answer to that question, why? Why is God invisible? Why do people like Scott Eichen have this complaint? And the answer is given to us right in this passage. It's actually given to us right there in verse 20. And it's not an answer that anybody considers today. It's not an answer when this comes up that anybody ever talks about, but it is the answer of the Bible. And we see it right there. You know, the bigger problem in Scripture than how to see God, the bigger problem is how to see God and still be alive afterwards. <laughs> That's what he says in verse 20. None shall see my face and live. See, the answer is the reason he fails to be visible to us is because he is terrifying to see. He is terrifying in a way that would undo us. Now we know, do we not, that things that we see can scare us, right? That's why we take care about our children. We're like, no, 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 they're too young to see that, right? They'll, they'll feel too vulnerable, right? In fact, I'll tell you, um, a great parenting mistake that I made of many, one of many, <laughs> is when I took my sons, I have two sons, they were still quite little, to see a movie and uh, to talk to them about it. And by the way, that's not the bad part. Always see movie with your, movies with your children. Go see movies with your children. But never, never, ever see a movie with your child without speaking to them after about it. Always schedule time to talk to them about it afterward. That's a good part. But the bad part was the movie I took them to see, these two little boys, was called Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> Maybe some of you have seen it. No? Well, you know, I thought this would be a great movie to see because it was, it was, it was a zombie movie. But... It wasn't really a zombie movie. It was supposed to be a parody of a zombie movie. So it wasn't actually a zombie movie. It wasn't supposed to be a horror movie. It was a parody of a horror movie, right? See, I'm trying to justify myself to you, see? see? 
I can be a good parent sometimes, really honest. I thought this would be hilarious to see it, my two little boys. So we go and we sit down, and they, the movie starts, and I look over, and, you know, they're obviously, you know, they're sitting there gripping their, their you know, the sides of the seats. So like people eating other people? Ah, you know, I realized my kids are being traumatized, you know. We had to leave the movie theater, and I've ruined them for the rest of their lives. Thaddeus and Jeremy, please forgive me before I die. <laughs> so I ruined my kids, but <clears throat> the point was they were really too young to see that. It was really upsetting. Made them feel vulnerable, this evil. Well, let me tell you something. Here's the thing. <clears throat> Here it is. You think evil is terrifying. You think absolute evil is what is so scary that it undoes you. Nuh-uh. Absolute good is even more terrifying. Absolute good, real righteousness, real glory, perfection. That's even more terrifying. The reality is that's even more terrifying. Maybe you don't believe me. I can prove it to you. Let me prove it to you. Put yourself next to, let's just take the, the aspect, the attribute of strength, of power. Put yourself next to something, even something really strong. Right? <clears throat> My sister right now is on safari in Africa. So she keeps sending back pictures and accounts right, of these huge elephants that she, and it's really scary to get actually close to an elephant because she gets close to these elephants she's like she's just really afraid well there's nothing evil about an elephant there's nothing you know wrong with an elephant it's just there's such power there there is such strength you know this elephant if you're standing next to it and it just you know takes a step sideways it could crush you and there would be nothing you could do about it Right? If you get around an elephant or a whale, just immense power, what do you do? You feel afraid. But you take that into the realm of people. Just, just take people who are more powerful than you. If you get around someone who's really strong, what's your first reaction? What's your first impulse? You, it's, it's like you're a little taken aback, right? You're a little scared. If you, and, and not just physical strength. If you walk into the boardroom and there's something, somebody really powerful there, what's your reaction? All right, immediately you're uptight. Immediately you're scared. That's some great glory of strength because it, sh- it highlights what you don't have. Or take, take somebody who's uh, really much more beautiful than you are. Somebody who's really beautiful. Now, I know this is Ironworks Church, and many of you are very beautiful, so you don't have this experience much as others of us have. <laughs> but take someone who is much, much better looking than you. I mean, not just good looking, but I mean, you know, melt the snow, melt the winter snow dazzling. Just so much better looking than you will ever hope to be. And what's your reaction when you get around this person? Be honest. Not, not someone of the opposite gender, not someone you would desire, but someone of the same gender who's just so much more glorious, so much dazzling in their looks than you. What's your first reaction? Is it like, wow, I admire you? No. 
What do you feel? You feel like, oh, you feel uncomfortable. You feel uh, nervous. You feel a little bit scared, don't you? Be honest. Why? There's a glory there that shows what I lack when I get around. Or take somebody who's honest. Just take somebody who is particularly honest. Not in an abrasive way. Not one of these people who just says whatever comes into their head. But somebody who's really honest about things who's really truthful. Do we want that? Do, I mean, you know, we say that we want truth, but only, some, you know, somewhat. We don't want that much truth, you know. But you say, get around somebody who's really, really truthful. And what's your first reaction? Before you saw the self-justification and stuff, but when, when someone who really undoes all of the lies and deceit, what's our reaction? We want to run away. Or somebody who's, who's good in a way that maybe you struggle with. Maybe somebody who's perfectly righteous. When you get around somebody who, who is perfectly righteous in an area, maybe you have a sin and you struggle with that sin, right? And you get around someone who's, who's perfectly good in that area. What is your reaction? Do you want to say, wow, I admire, you know, the reaction is like, ah. You want to get away, don't you? Don't you? Say amen, somebody. What is going on? What I've been describing to you, friends, is a little bit, a little taste of what it is to see God. Because God has all of these perfections in every area, in every dimension. He's perfect. And that's just what you experience with other people who have greater glory in some way that shows a lack in ourselves, in, in you. You're feeling a little bit of what it would be like to see God face to face, and it would undo you. So sure, you know, he could show us himself. He could reveal himself to us face to face, and we would be turned to, to cinders, as quickly as Semele before Zeus, we would be undone. And so he doesn't. Isn't that the problem? Isn't that what he says in verse 19? Isn't that the problem? What's going to go before Moses? All of his goodness. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm going to give you a glimpse from the back, Moses, of what? All my goodness goes before him, but you, none shall see my face. None shall see all of my beauty, my honesty, my truthfulness, all of the perfections of righteousness and holiness, all the things that are good. You can't do it. You can't take it. So you got a cleft in the rock. You got to be put in a cleft in the rock, Moses. You know, if anybody should have been able to see God, you know, some of us can't hope to get there, but if anybody should have been able to see God, it would be Moses, would it not? This is the meekest man in all of the earth. And he, was, he, could, he could speak with God like a friend, face to face. That's what it says. He spoke to him as if it's face to face, but somehow without seeing him. Moses should have been able to. This was a great, great man. But Moses needed to be put in the cleft of the rock. What is it that Moses needed? Well, God proclaims it 
as he walks past him, what does he say? I will have mercy. That's what he needs. I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy. See, what he's really saying is, I'll have mercy on you, Moses. I will have enough mercy on you so that you can sort of see me through the cracks of the hand, sort of get a glimpse of the glory. And friends, we need that same cleft because we need to encounter God. You know it. You know that you need him when you have those needs in your life that need an answer. You need, a, you need an encounter with him. When you need to know who you are as, as a person, you need an encounter with him. You need, you need to see him somehow. But in order for that prayer to be answered, in order for Thaddeus's cry to be heard, and Job's, and Philip's, you need mercy. That's what God's saying here in verse 19. You need mercy. We need the mercy. We still on? Yeah. We need the mercy seat. And that's what brings us to the New Testament passage that um, I, we printed here, but I didn't read. I'll read it to you now. It's from John chapter 1. In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has seen him and has made him known, has made him known. This is John in the beginning of his gospel, and he's showing the cosmic dimensions of Jesus Christ. And so, consequently, he enters into all of the different, not all of them, but, but many of the different attributes of God. So he's talking about God's eternality, his, his love, and his invisibility here. Jesus makes God visible in this way. And that's what Jesus says, you know, John chapter 5. Later in the gospel, after he heals a man, he's talking with some Jews. And uh, he says to them, no, you, you haven't seen God, but you've seen me. And I reveal him. In fact, that's the answer that he gives to Philip. Right? When Philip gave that cry of the heart, show us the Father, just show us the Father. What does Jesus answer to him? John 14, he says, Philip, Philip, I've been with you for so long. You see me? You've seen me? You've seen the Father. He's Jesus makes God visible in this way. And you know, the New Testament writers exult over this visibility in Christ. They exult over it, all of them, actually. Luke, Acts chapter 1, he shows himself to us. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared. Peter, 2 Peter 1, we beheld his majesty. John in 1 John 1, that which we have seen with our eyes and our hands have handled of the word of life seen with our eyes. 
Now, it's not just that Jesus gave us something to look at. So it's like, wow, now we know what God looks like. We look at Jesus and we see, ah, he gave us something to look at. It's not that. You know, I used to, uh, when I was in New York, I used, used to work up in Harlem on 125th Street at this place called the Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem. And I had a colleague there, and I was trying to talk to him um, one time about Christ. I was trying to talk to him about Jesus Christ. His name was Reggie. And Reggie says to me, you know, before we talk, before we have a, this kind of talk and talk about this, he said, let's, let's make sure we agree on one thing. Can you agree with me on one thing? And I said, what? And he said, that Jesus was black. Now, that might seem like an odd question uh, or an odd assertion to make, but, you know, in that subculture, you go up to Harlem on 125th Street. It's a very lively place, and it's the real, the, the main strip, really, of Harlem. And you walk along that street, and have people set out various wares that they're selling, you know, uh, uh, African, car, African heritage carvings and things like that. But one of the things that you see along that way, at least you did when I worked there in the 90s, probably, I don't know if it's still today, but you would see these pictures of Jesus. And they would, um, they're like the old uh, Sunday school pictures. You know, you have Jesus in the garden looking up and there's a halo and the beard and all. And they would be like that picture, except he would be black. And it was uh, kind of the way of them saying, you know, we're reclaiming, this is not the white man's God, you know, we're reclaiming this. Um, and, and my friend Reggie was part of a, a real radical group, probably <laughs> maybe even a violent group, but he had this idea that, you know, Jesus was really black. So he said, before we talk about Jesus Christ, you, well, let's agree on one thing, and that's that Jesus was black. Well, you know what my answer was to him? Maybe you can guess. You know what my answer was? Sure. <laughs> sure. I don't know what color Jesus was. If, if, if maybe he was black. Uh, sure. Let's, I'll agree with you that he's black, and now let's talk about what he did for us. Actually, you know, probably not. He wasn't from below the Sahara, but he was from, that, you know, probably more Arab-looking. Actually, you know, if, I, if you want to know what Jesus looked like, I would tell you, probably can see it in the Shroud of Turin based on, on, you know, the work that's been done on that object the last 20 years, I would say, you probably can see what Jesus looked like. But that's not what the New Testament writers are exalting about. What they're exalting about is that in Jesus Christ, we see God's disposition towards us. And it's merciful. It's merciful. You can look on Jesus Christ and be able to see the invisible without being undone. That's the message of the New Testament. And this is very important for you. If you're a believer here today, or if you, even if you're here and you're a non-believer, you need to know this. That this is what you do when you look on Christ. When you look on Jesus Christ, you find that you are turning, you're turning, it's like you're turning to God and you expect to see the faith that is saying to you, you know, you're really getting what you deserve. You're really getting what, what's happening to you is what you deserve. You're looking at a face that's going to be hard towards you. And instead, in Christ, you look upon God and you see someone who is favorably disposed towards you. Someone who likes you. Someone who doesn't want to thwart you, who wants you to succeed. You look into his face and you see his love. 
That's what you get in Jesus Christ. So without even actually hiding in a rock, we are there to be able to experience the things of God, his holiness, his beauty, his goodness without being undone because he wants us included in it. He's looking toward us and saying, I am with you in Christ. It changes us. It changes us. That's what John says in 1 John 3. He says, we will become like him because we see him just as he is. And this is the Christian life. It is about seeing God, more and more of God, and being changed by it. And maybe, just maybe, at the end, we will be able to see him in some unique way as he is. And the New Testament writers hold that vision for us. They hold it out to us again and again. Starting with Jesus, Jesus makes it one of his beatitudes. That promise of that cry of the heart will be answered. Thaddeus's cry, Philip's cry, because Jesus says it in the beatitude, they shall see God. Paul says it, 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter you love so much. What does he say? Then we will see him face to face. John, also in the, what I just quoted there, we'll see him as he is. And then you get to the end, Revelation 22. They shall see his face. You know, that's the last chapter in the Bible so you, you go from Moses having to be hidden in a cleft of a rock to the end of the Bible. This is the way the Bible ends. You'll see his face. Imagine that face. Imagine being able to look on him without, without the mercy seat, being able to look on him, being so changed that you see all goodness, everything that makes all of the sorrow run away. All that goodness, all that health, and you're not undone by it. Instead, you are changed like it, to be like him. That is yours, and that is the promise of yours through Jesus Christ. Friends, let us celebrate now by coming to the table.